With Capella University's FlexPath learning format, you can earn your degree online at your own pace and get support from people who care about your success. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show. Today on the James Altucher Show. You know, I've heard you say, um, you know, the key to happiness is generosity. And you've also said in other speeches that chances are you won't be good at something you hate doing. You have to be good at something you love doing. How does someone find, whether they're young or middle-aged or older, how do they find what they love doing or what can make them happy? It's rare that somebody will, at a young age, say, this is what I want to do in life, and it works out. That's rare. It takes a while to experiment. I you know, thought I wanted to go in government. I thought I wanted to be a lawyer. I thought about politics. In the end, I found that what makes me happy is building something from scratch with the help of others getting the material rewards from that and then giving those material rewards to other people. I tell people, I've made two college commencement speeches just in the last couple of days, and I told the students at Indiana University and University of Baltimore, experiment. You won't know right away. Try different things. Your parents are wonderful, but ignore what they want. My mother wanted me to be a dentist, well-meaning, but I didn't really want to do that. You can't let your parents live your life for you. So try many different things. I didn't start Carl until I was 37. Um, you know, maybe people are, 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 can start things and find what they love earlier. I, I found out later in life. And now, because I found out later in life, and particularly now because I'm involved in my philanthropy phase, I'm doing what I call sprinting to the finish line. I'm now 69 years old, the age that Ronald Reagan was when he ran against Carter. When I thought 69 was old, old age and ready for a nursing home, now I think it's the prime of life. But I recognize that at 69, I've lived more than I'm going to live and probably have lived at least three quarters of my actuarial expected life. So I'm trying to get as many things done in the remaining 25% or whatever it might be because I don't want to be on my deathbed saying, oh, if I'd only done that or why didn't I do that? I just don't want to do that. I want to get things done now and that's why I'm working harder now and longer hours than I did when I was in my 20s. Okay. Are we rolling on that? Ready? So, so yeah, we're, we're, we're already rolling. So I'm going to introduce you in a second. But you've, um, one of the things I thought was fascinating about you was 
you've bought all of these incredible historical documents and then donated them to museums and, and government museums and so on. So like the Magna Carta, uh, one of the copies of the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution, the Emancipation Proclamation, the 13th Amendment. Uh, it seems like you have this fascinating, and then you just mentioned how you're doing a book on, based on your interviews with historians, you have this great fascination with the literal building blocks of kind of the culture and civilization we live in. I'm just curious, people could always make their choices about where their philanthropy goes. And this is such an interesting um, thing that you've done buying all these historical documents. It's uh, kind of interesting in this sense, interesting, not so much that I've done it, others have done it as well, but that it gets so much attention because relatively speaking, it's a modest part of the money I give away, but it gets the most visibility. And I am amazed that uh, you can buy the Magna Carta for $21 million. You can buy a modern work of art for $200 million. And why a Magna Carta, the only copy in private hands is worth 21 million and why some modern work of art is worth 200, sometimes I can't understand, but that's the way the world operates. The reason I have done it is this. I stumbled into it. It wasn't a situation where I said, how can I do something useful for the country? Let me hire McKinsey. Let me come up with a great thing I could do with some of my money. I stumbled into it because I went to a uh, viewing of the Magna Carta at Sotheby's. They told me it was actually going to be auctioned off. I said, how can you auction off the Magna Carta? It turns out there's 17 copies of them, 15 in British institutions, one in the Australian Parliament, and one that Ross Perot had bought in the early 1980s from the family that had it in his possession for 500 years. He decided to auction it off uh, about 10 years ago now, and I bought it, and then I put it on permanent display uh, at the... Uh, uh, U.S. Uh, archives, National Archives, and upon my death, it'll you know stay there. And so, I, after that happened, I realized that people thought it was a good thing to make available these documents that many cases people have in their private collections, but just nobody sees them. So I started buying other historic documents, putting them on display, the ones you mentioned, among others. But what's the importance of it? What's the relevance of it? So why is that such a great thing? If I told you I have a copy of the Magna Carta a copy of it. It's a facsimile. It's on paper. And it's in the other room. You'd say, well, okay, I can look it up in a textbook anytime. I can, I can look at it on a computer screen. It turns out that the human brain is still not so uh, changed from the way it was 100 years ago or 200 years ago that people still want to see the original of something. So if you can see the original of the Magna Carta, you'd say, well, let me do that. And if I'm going to see the original, maybe before I see it or after I see it, I'm going to go learn more about its background, learn more about the history of it. If I tell you on a computer screen, here's a copy of the Magna Carta, here's the text, you won't be as interested to maybe learn as much. So it turns out by having these historic documents in places where people can see them, they might learn a little bit more about American history. And I can talk more about why I think that's important. The essence of it is we don't know as much about history as we should. We don't teach it as much as we used to. We don't teach civics very much. And you get statistics like three quarters of the Americans say they, they cannot name the three branches of our government. Um, and these are staggering kinds of things. And it's a large part because we don't teach civics as the way we did 25 years ago or 50 years ago. In American history, we barely teach now in even colleges. You can graduate from any college in this country practically without taking an American history course. And you can graduate as a history major in 80% of our colleges without having to take an American history course. Uh, it's just staggering to me. So I am interested in this maybe because I can understand it better than I can physics or chemistry or biology. I wasn't a superstar in those areas. So this is my little area that I know something about and care about. And, and I mean, this is all on a tangent to all the things I, I 
wanted to talk about. But what what do you see as? And I agree that understanding history is important. What do you what do you see as the importance of understanding American history? There was a Spanish-born uh, uh, philosopher, historian, political scientist, economist uh, named George Santiana, who taught at Harvard for a while. And he famously said, those people that don't remember history are condemned to re relive it. And many people have said similar versions of it, but that's the one that is often best remembered. I, I like Mark Twain's, uh, history doesn't repeat, but it rhymes. The same point. And so if you study history, you probably can learn what people did right or wrong before. So if you have a view that we've made mistakes, we should learn from them and maybe correct them in the future. So the reason I think it's important to learn history and particularly the history of your country is that one, you can avoid the mistakes. Two, you have a better sense of what your country is all about. Three, you might be a more informed citizen and therefore my theory is, is if you have more informed citizens, you might have a better democracy. That's a hope. So, so I'll do uh, my attempt at an intro. Intros are always the hardest part for me, so forgive me if I get anything wrong. But uh, David Rubenstein, you're a co-founder and co-chairman of the Carlyle Group, which is the biggest private equity uh, firm maybe in the world, if I were to guess. It's over $200 billion in assets. You guys own hundreds of companies and invested in, I guess, hundreds more, thousands of employees. And the companies you own, there's over a million employees. Uh, you're chairman of uh, the Kennedy uh, Institution of the Arts. Am I saying the name right? Uh, Kennedy Center, John F. Kennedy Center for the Performing Arts. John F. Kennedy Center for the Performing Arts. You're chairman of the Smithsonian. Um, there's many other titles. I could, I could spend the entire hour introducing you, but you, you also have uh, the David Rubenstein show on Bloomberg, peer-to-peer uh, -peer conversations. And I have to say, I've, I've watched quite a few of your shows. You're a great interviewer. And uh, uh, I, I got nervous before this interview. Uh, you know, A, what do you ask the person who's been asked everything? And B, what do you ask the person who has also asked other people everything? So it, it, I've, I've really admired you your show. Hmm? And what did you conclude? Uh, well, we'll find out by the end of this interview. All right. Uh, you know, actually, there's one thing I was curious about. When you were interviewing Barry Diller, you asked you ask something to the effect of, how do you get to be go from the mailroom to the CEO? Because right. you always hear about, it's like almost this mythology, it's these correct. great billionaires. Oh, I started in the mailroom. I started in the mailroom. It's, it's, you know, Barry Diller, Mike Ovids, Brian Grazer, all these famous, you know, uh, entertainment billionaires started in the mailroom somewhere at CEA or William Morris or wherever. Uh, what would what would you do if you were starting in the mailroom at a private equity firm today? I always wondered myself, and that's why I asked Barry Diller, what is it that about the mailroom that enables people to rise up? David Geffen, I think, being another one that did yeah. that. I, I think it was in their case that you get to see all the correspondence and then you know who's doing what and you get to make some contacts. And so if you're delivering the mail to a famous agent, you might talk to him about this or that, that you read about, and perhaps some of the contacts wear off on you. But it takes a little bit of gumption to kind of go from the mailroom to uh, being Barry Diller. Now, presumably everybody that worked in the mailroom didn't turn out to be a billionaire. Many of them still probably still in the mailroom. If I was in the mailroom at Carlisle, I'd say uh, we have a problem because I don't think there should be a mailroom early in the sense that everything is electronic today. But uh, there are some mail, of course, uh, that's distributed. I don't think it would probably help as much. I haven't heard of many people starting private equity firms after they were in the mailroom of private equity firms, but 
that's probably because it's a different type of business. It's, it tends to require a certain level of education generally, and maybe it's not as oriented to some relationships as maybe just the, the entertainment world might be. But, but uh, you know, I like Barry Diller's answer also, which is that he said other people use it to, you know, network with agents and other people, but he used it as an opportunity to basically read the history, the deep history of the firm and the, in the industry. So then he knows when he's talking to the agents, every project they're working on, their history, their background. And so he could start to come up with ideas for them. That's my guess is where he oh, was another going Another way that. of saying it is this. If you could read um, 10 people's correspondence every day for a year, you're going to know a lot about those people, maybe more than they want you to know. But there's no doubt that if you can read somebody's correspondence repeatedly, you're going to learn a lot and it'll rub off on you and maybe make you more sophisticated and you're able to open doors for your for yourself. And, and you know, you mentioned that, um, you know, education is obviously very important for private equity, but... Um, I don't think you really meant to discount relationships because I would think one of the most important things when looking, so private equity, you basically look at a business that might be failing or have some problems. You invest at what you feel right. is a cheaper valuation than they should be if their problems were fixed. You fix those problems and eventually the company right. grows up and you sell them. That's a rough version of my well, definition. Yes, but let me, let me clarify what I meant. Um, in the entertainment world, uh, Bo Goldman, who famously wrote... Um, Butch Cassidy, the Sundance Kid, and he passed away recently. He was the scriptwriter for that. He wrote a book that was entitled "Nobody Here Knows Anything." I think it's something to that effect. Um, and his point was, um, there's a lot of luck going on in Hollywood. Nobody can guess whether something's going to make it or not. And relationships matter a great deal. Academic pedigrees don't mean as much. If the, somebody writes a movie and it turns out to be great, whether he or she went to Harvard makes no difference. In the private equity world, because it's part of the finance world, and it's in base to some extent in New York or Boston or larger, large cities, which have great universities very often, the people that go into these fields tend to go to very good colleges, very good business schools, and probably there's a greater premium in this part of the world, the finance world, than there is in the entertainment world and where you went to college or graduate school. The entertainment world, people don't care. If you, your movie is a bestseller, they don't care where you went to school. It makes no difference. Yeah, and I guess with relationships in Hollywood, you could come up with a movie idea, but you get the meeting when you get, I don't know, Leonardo DiCaprio attached to the movie in some ways. That's That could be relationships. Like you were just at his house. He says, yeah, sure, I'll do this movie. Then you can get into all the studios with a meeting. But uh, I imagine your ability to evaluate people and and evaluate the strength of the relationships with their partners helps you decide whether to go into a company and what your first steps would be in that company. Well, of course, relationships matter in all businesses. I just think that my point was in private equity and finance and some other areas, academic, credentials from one from an academic institution probably mean more than they might meet in Hollywood. You can rise up in the mailroom uh, more readily in the entertainment world probably than you could in private equity, but there are exceptions. There are people that have dropped out of college and made a lot of money in finance. Some of the best investment bankers ever never went to business school. So there's obviously exceptions. And relationships matter in all parts of life. Uh, you can't know too many people and you can't cultivate too many good relationships. In the end, I was able to start Carlisle because of relationships that I developed where people helped me get their initial money, helped me meet people who would join the firm. So of course, relationships matter everywhere. So you you, you started uh, Carlisle in the in the latish 80s and before that you worked in the carter white house 
before that, you were chief counsel for, I was surprised to read this, Senator Birch Bayh in Indiana. Can I tell you one little story? Sure. In 1980, I was, it's my 12th year old birthday. And uh, my dad took me to Washington, D.C. and he let me just run around. And I basically wandered into Birch Bayh's office and it was his birthday also. So, and his staff was about to give him a surprise party and a cake and everything. So it was just a fun experience. I enjoyed his birthday cake with him and his staff at that time in 19. You were gone from there at that time. You were, you were in the Carter White House, but uh, I thought he was a very good guy. He was very nice to me as a 12 year old just wandering into his office. Um, people don't remember him as much as maybe they should. He was elected to the United States Senate at the age of 34 in 1962. He beat a incumbent named Homer K. Part. Uh, he wrote two constitutional amendments. Plus the ERA, which never became. Which didn't become part of it, but he, he that failed. But he did write the 25th Amendment, which we're talking about these days a lot, and the, ER, and, and the amendment that uh, lowered the uh, voting age from 21 to 18. Also, he helped the author Title IX of the Education Act. He was defeated in 1980 by uh, Dan Quayle and then retired. Uh, his son later became a United States Senator, Evan Bayh. Very distinguished person. I thought he was certainly qualified to be president of the United States in 1976, but he didn't start in Iowa early enough. Jimmy Carter, uh, my ultimate boss, did start in Iowa, spent 100 days in Iowa, and it made a big difference. So you, you were around all of these incredibly charismatic people like Jimmy Carter. Nobody knew him when he started running. Everybody thought it was a joke. This one-term governor from Georgia uh, running for president. Um, of course, Birch Bayh uh, defeating an incumbent and, and staying in office for so long. You know, Washington is filled with probably more charisma than intelligence, some would say. You've seen all these charismatic people, and, and you yourself, you built this huge firm. And, you know, you don't come across, I doubt you would describe yourself as the most charismatic person in the world, but you're certainly very charismatic. What, 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 what do you think are elements of, of charisma as you were building, you know, and raising tens of millions of dollars for the Kyle group, Carlisle group? Well, I wouldn't say I'm charismatic. I Some, knew you wouldn't say that. I would say I'm char charisma challenged. Charisma <laughs> is a word that came into the American uh, popular uh, uh, lexicon, I'd say, when John Kennedy became president. People saw a certain sex appeal, charisma, we called it, that just defied what you had seen with, let's say, Eisenhower or Harry Truman, for example. And charisma is something that politicians like to have. It's a, you know, I would say, a kind of sex appeal. You you can get people excited. You People listen to what, what you have to say. I don't have that kind of uh, personality. I wish I did. But these people who have those kind of personalities are often people who are student body presidents or uh, big men on campus. I was not, I was a little man on campus. Uh, in fact, in my graduating class, I would have been voted probably the least likely to succeed. I wound up being the chairman of the board of my alma mater, Duke University, and I would have been voted at the time there the least likely person to probably be chairman. And I tell people, uh, and particularly college audiences um, and, and, and so forth and students, the trick in life is not to win necessarily the first third of life, but to win the second and third third. If you win the first third of life and you are a Rhodes Scholar, you're president of the Harvard Law Review, you're Supreme Court clerk, you're student body president, people think you're great, and maybe you are, but then you can tend to coast on that, and if you coast on that, the second and third third, you'll be bypassed by people like me who have to struggle to get through the first third, and they learn how to struggle, and then they, in the second and third third, they're struggling, teaches them how to succeed. So I like to remind people that winning the first third of life is nice, but not necessarily gonna indicate who's gonna be successful in 
the part of life that probably matters, the second and third third. Well, but it seems like you did pretty well or very well the first third, you know, went to good schools, ended up working in the White House. Uh, you know, you mentioned John F. Kennedy, you worked for a while for for Ted Sorensen, his speechwriter, one of the greatest speechwriters of all time. Uh, so from him, you must have learned a little bit about what makes what makes someone a leader. Uh, where, where was your struggle in the first third? And, well, and, I, and without the self-deprecating like Carter yeah, and inflation. I, I, and I would say, um, you know, I my athletic career peaked at seven or eight. You know, when I was six, I thought like I'd be good a, Jews. Well, yeah, I thought I was six o'clock at six at six age at the age of six. I thought, okay, I could be a professional baseball player. My idol was Mickey Mantle, Willie Mays. Then at seven or eight, my you know, eight, my growth stunted, and at nine, I was short, and ten, I was too short, and then I realized, you know, if you're Jewish, you're not likely to be a major league baseball player unless you're Sandy Koufax and you're unusual. So I uh, wasn't a great athlete, and I, you know, I wasn't first in my class. I wasn't student body president. Um, I wouldn't say the most beautiful girls in the uh, city of Baltimore were flocking to uh, go out on dates with me. So I would say I wasn't, uh, you know, a, a big success. Uh, I was a success only in the eyes of two people, my parents. I was their only child, so they thought I was successful, but I knew better. And and but but then that that's still not through the first third. That's like right. the first sixth. Then where would you say the struggle was after that? Like obviously you were you were educationally uh, you 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 succeeded at having a great education, and I'm sure you 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 did well everywhere. And then you had you 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 basically chose a path in life and and seemed to keep succeeding well, at it. Did much better, but I'll give you an example. Uh, I got a job in the White House, which happened by working the campaign. Uh, if you work in a campaign and it wins, you probably get a job in the White House. So I joined Jimmy Carter when he was 33 points ahead of uh, Gerald Ford in 1976, and Carter won by one point. You could argue my contribution wasn't so great, but I um, was the deputy to the domestic policy advisor who knew Carter well, and I became uh, his deputy. Uh, and I worked very hard for four years. I did virtually nothing but work in the White House. I loved it. But then we lost the election. So all of a sudden, somebody who's flying around on Air Force One, going to Marine, or Marine One, going to Camp David, advising the President of the United States, is unemployable because nobody wanted to hire a young lawyer who really didn't know how to practice law uh, to do something in Washington, D.C. So it probably took six months before somebody would hire me. So I would say, you know, I had to lie to my mother. I said, I have so many offers, I don't know which one to take. And she would say, well, take one of them. It's, you know, it's May already, it's June. I mean, you know, everybody else is working. But so I would say that was a struggle. And then uh, when Were I you went- scared? I'm sorry? Were you scared at that point? I wasn't, I wouldn't say scared. I would say that I, was embarrassed that nobody probably wanted to hire me, even though I thought I'd gone to a good college and going to law school. And you know, I worked in the White House and I wasn't terrible, but I, I realized in hindsight that I had no legal skills anybody wanted because I didn't really practice law that long. And secondly, influence peddling, which is often done in Washington, is good if you are close to people in power. Well, Reagan wasn't somebody that I knew, so it didn't really work out. Um, in the end, perseverance, you know, worked. I mean, I just persevered. I just kept going forward and I got lucky. I practiced law again and that's the greatest thing that happened to me. When I, second time I practiced law, it was clear to me that I didn't really, I wasn't a really good lawyer. Lawyers are really have specialized in various things. They care about little details. They have a narrow area of expertise and they learned that in the first seven years out of law school or seven, eight years. Well, I was mostly in the White House then, so I didn't really have the legal skills that my peers had. But had I done so, I would have been a nice, Washington corporate lawyer, and by the time I was 65, I would have been eased out of my firm because they retire you now. 
Uh, because I wasn't good at practicing law, I had to do something else. And I, I stumbled into private equity. I got in on the ground floor of an industry that was booming and I got very lucky and it, and it worked out. Uh, but it was, you know, some struggle to get there and it took a long time. And when we first started the firm, many people laughed at us because who's going to build a private equity firm in Washington, D.C.? It's a, it's a government city and, and nobody took us seriously for, for many years. So, so when you started the private equity firm, is it because um, you had companies in mind or a theory in mind that companies were being undervalued and you thought, okay, I can persuade this vision to investors and, and then put that money to work in, in, into these companies? Or did you just think there's, there's a hole missing, like a private equity firm in Washington, D.C. would do well because of the government contacts, and that was your vision? Like, What was the vision, that, the first vision you brought to potential investors? Well, I can lie to you and tell you I had great foresight and realized that we had an opportunity to build something great in Washington, but that wouldn't be true. What really happened was I was practicing law and I really wasn't that good a lawyer. I mean, people weren't calling me up because I, you know, I didn't have any great skills. And I read about a man named Bill Simon who'd been Secretary of the Treasury, and he had done something called a leverage buyout in the early 80s where he bought Gibson greeting cards. He put in a million of his own money. He made roughly $80 million in two and a half years. I read about that and said, that's better than practicing law. Whatever a leverage buyout is, I didn't know what it was. So I went down the street to Bill Miller, who'd been Secretary of the Treasury in the Carter years, and said, why don't you start a leverage buyout firm like Bill Simon did, your, your predecessor, and I'll help you with some legal work, even though I'm not that great a lawyer. He didn't seem impressed by that. But I ultimately, I decided maybe I could start the first private equity firm in Washington. If I got people who actually knew something about finance, I could do maybe some legal work. And then what happened was um, I came up with an idea that would say, well, we understand companies more heavily affected by the federal government than the guys in New York. So if you invest with us, you might get the benefit of our knowledge of Washington. That was basically what our uh, pitch was. And maybe there was something to it, but you know, obviously people in New York knew, knew things about Washington regulated companies as well. What really enabled Carlisle to grow were, I would say, three things. One, we had a, a healthy culture. All businesses that survive and do well have a good culture, not a bad culture. And we had a culture that we were building something. It was uh, one where the partners were sharing the wealth. We were trying to get good people and give them a lot of leeway and a lot of the shares of the profits. So it was a healthy culture. Second, we had a good track record. If you have a healthy culture and a bad track record, that's not gonna be good. So I was very fortunate to recruit people that had very good investment uh, capabilities, as it turned out, and we had a very, very good track record. And third, we came up with an idea that changed the face of private equity. Now, I don't have a royalty that I'm collecting from other people for having changed the face of private equity, and nobody is patting me on the back, and there's no, bell, there's no Nobel Prize for private equity that I'm aware of. But the idea, and it's something that you will say, is this such a great idea? This doesn't strike me as the same as discovering DNA or discovering penicillin, and it's not. But it simply was this. Private equity firms were very small firms. They were all mom and pops. Uh, when KKR did the famous RJR deal in 1989, they had about seven investment professionals. Why were they so small? Because the partnership agreements that you had said you can only do one thing. If you raise a fund, you have to spend all your time investing that fund, which makes sense. Um, so they were all very small little boutiques. I decided that what we would do is try to build a Vanguard, a T. Rowe Price, a Fidelity of private equity, which is to say have many different funds and not just have one buyout fund. So after we raised our, our first buyout fund, it was $100 million, I told my partners, you manage this and would let me go out and try to raise, uh, recruit people to raise, to run a second fund, let's say in venture capital, a third fund in real estate, a fourth fund in, in debt. 
and then I will go raise money for them and you guys oversee the investment. So we were building out a family of funds, take advantage of our brand name and to take advantage of our um, you know, capability of recruiting pretty good people. So that's, that's what we did. We built a, a, a brand name. So today you've heard of other brand names, KKR, Blackstone, Apollo, uh, TPG, Bain. They've all done what we might have pioneered, which is to build out a family of funds and then take advantage of our brand name and centralize the administrative, legal, tax, accounting kind of thing. So that's, I, I, as I look at your face, you are nonplussed by um, the um, lack of brilliance of that idea. No, and no, again, not, not at all. It, because it, I'm, it, I'm does, at, it doesn't seem like it's the same as discovering DNA, but but it you know it worked. No, but the, the interesting thing is you're you're right. They were like KKR was so focused on just the leverage buyout. They I don't think they started thinking about venture capital to like 1999. You know, 13 years later. Um, they had the view initially, um, and I think they're very talented people, and they built a very good firm. That you know, we were a bit of a franchise. We were like McDonald's. Yeah, uh, we're setting up a fund here, a fund there. And then we, I came up with the other idea of globalizing the business. Historically, private equity people in the United States did their deals in the United States. Europeans did it in Europe, Asians in Asia. I said, let's go hire Europeans, and we'll have a Carlisle Europe fund, and Asians at Carlisle Asia fund. Many people didn't think that would work because. We were based in the United States. What do we know about Europe? What do we know about Asia? But I, we hired locals. That was our strategy. And that's a model that others have followed. Um, now, they don't give me credit for it, and I don't maybe deserve the credit for it, but it was something that we did pioneer. So, so but, it, you know, it's interesting, too, because one of the ways you were able to really build up the brand of the Carlisle, Carlisle Group in the beginning was to hire very well-known people, particularly in, you know, people coming out of government. And, and again, you were branding yourself as, hey, we know government better than anyone else. So, so it made sense for you to hire these, you know, ex-presidents. You had everybody from, you know, James Baker to John Major, who was the former prime minister of the UK. Uh, uh, it's a double-edged sword. Let me explain. Mm -hmm. um, yes, I would like to say we understood companies heavily affected by government better than other people. So we did a lot of aerospace defense deals initially. And you could argue that the Pentagon is the biggest customer and people who understand the Pentagon might help you. And we did bring in uh, former Secretary of Defense, Frank Carlucci. After Frank Carlucci, we brought in Jim Baker, Dick Darman, uh, George Herbert Walker Bush as an advisor, Arthur Levitt, former chairman of the SEC, John Major, and, and a few others. Now, the truth is, the double-edged sword is this. If you bring in government people and they are back lobbying the government, that's not a good thing because it looks like you're taking advantage of your ties, particularly these visible people, and they never did that. Their role was not so much to give us advice about the government. We had lower level people that would deal with the kind of issues we had to deal with. Their real role was to give us some visibility. So if I called you up uh, 20 years ago and said, guess what, I'm coming to London and I'm gonna tell you about my private equity fund, uh, would you like to have lunch with me? You'd say, well, who are you? I say, by the way, uh, Jim Baker is coming with George Bush, and you might want to hear about what they did when they were government. And maybe at the end, I'll tell you a little bit on my private equity fund. You might say, well, I'll roll my eyes about the private equity fund, but I want to hear Jim Baker and George Bush. So they were really draws for uh, sessions we would have. And there's no doubt that they were a very effective draws. As Carlisle's brand name became better known, we didn't need them to be the draws so much. And ultimately, they retired from the firm. And we tried to avoid the perception that we've ever use government people in any inappropriate way, which is I go out and lobby government. We, we, they never did that. They were really very nice people. Uh, George Herbert Walker Bush became a very close friend of mine. I, I was at his memorial service. I was at Barbara Bush's memorial service. They were terrific people, 
some of the nicest people I ever met, but they never went back and talked to government for us. Um, they, their role was really to kind of give us some visibility and maybe credibility. If you, you, know, you hear George Walker, Herbert Walker Bush saying, Carlisle, Rubenstein, nice firm. You know, he's not an investment expert. You'd say, well, he thinks it's a nice firm. Maybe we'll take a look at it. If the track record was terrible, it wouldn't make a difference, though. Yes, it's totally true. Airbnb has changed my life. If anything, they have made my life so much better. Like I used to live in Airbnbs. I I lived in over 100 or 200 different Airbnbs over a three-year period, and I loved it. I I became a really good guest of Airbnbs, and I got to know lots of hosts. So when I initially owned a house, I, of course, the first thing I thought was, I'm going to turn my house into an Airbnb because I travel a lot. So why leave my house unused when I can make a side income by letting others Airbnb my house or come to stay in my house as guests? And having my own Airbnb or, or being a host for Airbnb has allowed me to do just that. And I've met other hosts. I've actually spoken at Airbnb's host conference. I think it was in 2017. I met so many just nice hosts. It's a great community. And I love, you know, turning my own home into an Airbnb. Like I'm traveling to Austin next month. My home's going to be an Airbnb while I'm away. And I'll stay in an Airbnb. I'd rather stay in like a three-story house Airbnb than in one tiny hotel room in, in the middle of Austin during South by Southwest. So listen, while you're away, your home could be an Airbnb. Many people host on Airbnb, but there are people who are just letting their house sit empty, who've never thought about it or didn't realize their space could be an Airbnb. Hosting can easily fit into your lifestyle and is a great way to earn some extra money. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, then you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I am so glad you convinced me that the family car should be the Defender 110. It is so beautiful inside. It's so comfortable and it just feels indestructible. Yes, it really is. I've been waiting a long time for the new model to come out. The Defender 110, I'm telling you, it's my favorite car of all times. It's my third one. You know, I have stories of going off road. The guy managed the group. He was like, what are you doing in this beautiful car? I'm like, I'm going off road. He's like, are you sure? Because you can use one of ours. And then they look like Mad Max cars. I'm like, no, 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 no. We're going to do this. And he was shocked. Wow. Well, it's great because the Defender has been reimagined for 21st century adventure and its unparalleled off-road ability as well as its robust interior are invaluable whether you're headed towards uncharted territory or just a weekend of exploration. The Defender 110 tackles challenging surroundings with absolute confidence. The SUV conveys strength outside and in, featuring peerless technology like an intuitive driver display and an award-winning infotainment system. That's my favorite part, to keep you connected no matter where the journey takes you. Adventure is unique to everyone, and so is the Defender. Choose from the two-door Defender 90, the four-door Defender 110, or the larger Defender 130 with the ability to seat up to eight passengers. You'll find uncompromising performance in all three. So pack up and go even further with the Defender 110. Learn more at LandRoverUSA.com forward slash 
defender. Hey, listen, men's health is important. Men act all cocky and like they don't need anything. But the reality is, as you get older, there's some things you need. And it often feels like we're too busy to take care of our health problems. Like I'd rather do anything than go to the doctor or the dentist or the pharmacy or whatever. But now you don't have to waste your time if you use HIMS. HIMS, H-I-M-S, HIMS is changing men's healthcare by providing simple and convenient access to science-backed treatments for erectile dysfunction, hair loss, weight loss, and more. The entire process is 100% online, so you get a new routine of improving your overall health faster. Jay, you listening to all this? Yes, I'm definitely going to use HIMS from now Not on. Not that you need it. You're, you're young and healthy. James, I'm 35. You, you're getting there. You might, you might need it. Who knows? But if prescribed, your medication ships directly to you for free and indiscreet packaging. No insurance is needed. You can manage your plan on the HIMSS app, track progress, and learn more about your conditions and how to treat them from leading medical experts. Start your free online visit today at HIMSS.com slash James. Could you imagine that there's a whole section just with my name on it? HIMSS.com slash James. That's how I how much I am representative of the kind of person who needs HIMS. That's HIMS.com slash James for your personalized treatment options. HIMS.com slash James. Prescriptions require an online consultation with a healthcare provider who will determine if appropriate. Restrictions apply. See HIMS.com slash James for details and important safety information. Subscription required. Price varies based on product and subscription plan. Again, we were talking about charisma earlier and you said, oh, it's the type of person who gets people excited or was student body president or whatever. But let's change the word a little bit and, and call it persuasion. Obviously, you've been really good at persuading extremely important people to join your right. beginning firm. And yes, track record is important, but you built that over time. You're incredibly good at persuading people to invest in you. You're incredibly good at, at persuading companies you know, private equity firm at private equity, the industry at times has been like a little bit of a battlefield. There were too many, too many companies and too few private equity firms. So, or no, too many private equity firms, too few companies. Everyone was sort of auctioning for the, the best deal. How you had to be good at persuading people to let you take the investment from you. And then ultimately you had to persuade people to buy investments from you. And so what, what are your elements of persuasion that you think are important? Well, let me correct one thing. You can never have too many private equity firms. <laughs> uh, the world can never have too many private equity firms. Um, but uh, to be serious- is that, is that, is, I'm assuming that's a little bit of a joke. <laughs> uh, that is tongue in cheek. Okay. Uh, maybe you can occasionally have one or two more than you need. I don't know. Um, there was a book written by Richard Neustadt called Presidential Power. It was written in the late 1950s. And he was the person that John Kennedy asked to head up or give him a paper on the transition when Kennedy was elected in 1960. In those days, transitions were different than today. Uh, there was no office for the transition. John Kennedy ran his transition out of his townhouse in, in uh, Georgetown. There was no money for transitions. They were very different. And, and Richard Neustadt produced like one of the few memos that was written for the transition before the election uh, occurred. In that book, which was a very influential book, he said the president, the president only has the power to persuade. The, the power he has is relatively weak. Neustadt had worked in the Truman administration and Truman was frustrated. He, he would say, do this, do that, and nothing would get done. 
it wasn't like the military. When you think about it, all of life is about the ability to persuade other people to do what you want. And the way I look at it is uh, your partner, your spouse, your child, your parent, in life, what you're really trying to do is persuade somebody to do what you want. Even if you're Albert Einstein, you come up with E equals MC squared. Nobody really was persuaded initially. He had to spend some time convincing people that he was right, and it took a long time. Um, so there are three ways you can persuade people. One is... Do you mind if I write down why you, why you say these things? Okay. There are three ways to persuade people. Number one is by writing. Obviously, people who are gifted writers can persuade people to follow them. Now, not everybody's William Shakespeare, so not everybody can write so eloquently. But if you learn how to write a memo, a letter, uh, an article, a book, you can be very persuasive. Op-ed articles are persuasive to people, editorials, many things. Some people know how to do that. Some people do not. A second way is to learn how to talk in oral communication. Martin Luther King, you could argue, was a very persuasive uh, orator. Presumably, um, other great orators had the same skill of, of really knowing how to persuade people, or great lawyers, uh, David Boys, um, pres presumably able to persuade a judge or a jury. So learning how to talk in an effective way can be another way to persuade people. The third way is the most effective way, and that's to persuade people by example. So for example, when um, George Washington was fighting the Revolutionary War, he was the general, lieutenant general. He didn't have to mix with the troops that much because he was the, the general. He had provisions, he had clothing, he had food. But like Valley Forge in 1777, he stayed with the troops. A third of them didn't have enough clothes uh, half of them didn't have really shoes. They were really uh, in bad shape. He could have stayed, He could have said to them, look, there's a Ritz-Carlton down the street. I'm going to stay there, and when we go to war again, I'll, I'll come back and see you. Because in those days, bizarrely, uh, when the winter came, people didn't fight. They, it was too cold to fight. So the, the British would hang out in Manhattan and, 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 uh, or Philadelphia, and, and Washington with his troops would be in the suburbs, and they didn't fight. There was like an unwritten rule. You don't fight in the, in the wintertime. It's too cold or something. So... But he stayed with the troops, lead by example, communicate by example. So if you really want to persuade people to do something, do something that you say you're going to do and have other people follow it. Now, this is what persuasion is, one of these ways, and you learn how to persuade people. And there's some people that know how to write so well, but they're demagogues, so they talk so well, they're demagogues, that they use it in an inappropriate way. And you can lead by example in an inappropriate way. But these are the three things that I think are very important. Now, if you're going to be a, a, a fundraiser, you raise money, you want people to invest with Carlisle or with other firms, you have to be able to uh, pr provide written materials that are persuasive. You also have to be able to orally present and, and, and maybe lead by example by putting your own money alongside the investors. So that's the point. Right. So, so, so I'm going to ask you first, I'm going to go backwards. So example, you have three kids. Where have you been able to, kids, of course, you can't tell them anything and you can't write them a letter, do this. Where have you kind of been able to persuade them by leading by example? Well, I would put it this way. I would say, uh, I like to quote Jackie Kennedy, who famously said, um, if you mess up raising your children, nothing else in life really matters. And what she was really saying in a different way than I would say it is, the hardest thing in life is raising children and having them be happy, healthy, successful. Uh, it's, it's just not easy. And we've seen over you know, several million years, people who are prominent raise children who are not as successful. 
and then people who are not prominent raise kids who are very successful. There's no one way to raise kids that work. Clearly, if you're not wealthy and a wealthy person says raising children in a wealthy environment is difficult, they will be upset with you because you're, you have all these advantages they don't have. But the truth is, if you look at wealthy families, they very often don't produce people who are as driven as the person who might have made the money. So if you get successful in life, you have to remember that um, uh, you have to spend some time uh, disciplining your children or persuading them or being a role model for them. If you just say, here's plenty of money and have a nice life, they probably aren't going to now be as successful as uh, you would like. So the people that run the world, by and large, with a few exceptions, generally came from blue-collar or lower-middle-class backgrounds. So, so it's so a general a, rule. What's a specific example where you, you In by example, case? taught your okay. kids? Well, I, my kids are pretty hardworking. Um, you know, I wouldn't say they're obsessive-compulsive workaholics, as some people might say I am, but I tried by working hard uh, give them an example that if they work hard, maybe something good will come from it. Secondly, I have greatly valued education, uh, which was the pathway for me to get from where I was. So I've emphasized the importance of doing well in school to them and how important that is to me. Also, uh, the importance of treating other people well and try to show them how you treat people appropriately, how you um, relate to them. And, you know, people, I'll let other people judge whether, um, you know, uh, I have been successful, but... Uh, clearly, uh, you know, most people are proud of their children. I'm proud of my children, but I don't want them to all of a sudden think that because I have money that their life is going to be easy and they don't have to do anything. Well, and I'm, I'm going to actually uh, stick a pin in that because I'm going to get back to that. In terms of persuasion with writing and talking, there's similar principles to both with persuasion. Um, you know, maybe maybe you can address that. Like when you are going to speak to somebody and persuade them, and this maybe it was more difficult when you were starting out, or when you're going to write a letter to somebody to persuade them, there's probably similar, they, they run in parallel. There's similar techniques of persuasion in both of those. And, and what would you say have worked for you? Well, there are many techniques. There's no uh, perfect way, but I'd say if you're going to have a conversation with somebody and you want to persuade them to do A, B, or C, uh, it's pretty good to know something about this person before you have the meeting. So if you know this person hates A, B, and C, you need to find a way to persuade them. And if you know their views, it's helpful. So finding out somebody, something about somebody you meet is helpful. Secondly, um, it turns out that people like to feel connected with people. So if I say to you, I grew up in Baltimore, and you say, I grew up in Baltimore, all of a sudden we have a connection. If I say I went to Duke and you say I went to Duke, we have a connection now. I went to Duke. Okay, well, we're connected. I, I went three summers to their uh, TIP program when I was well, in high school. Well, that's a very good program. That's for uh, children who are uh, advanced at that age. To, they're very, very uh, well run. It's a very good program. But um, if you have a connection with people, the trick is to find what the connection is. So you'll see in many conversations that people have all over the world and all kinds of things, that people try to say, hey, I went to school here, or you went to school here, I did this, I do that, we, we're, we're common, we play tennis, we do this. So try to figure out what the connections are. Then you can also see by letting people talk first what it is that is on their mind. If you're trying to persuade somebody to do something and you go in and say, I don't have time to listen to you, let me tell you why I my ideas are so great, that person may say, well, geez, you know, I kind of, have my own views, and I guess if you listen to my views, maybe you would have tilted your argument to 
um, align yourself with me. So listening to people, letting people talk. Remember, the most popular word in the English language is what? I, I. People love to talk about themselves. Let people talk about themselves. You'll learn something. Let them give you their ideas. So if you're trying to persuade people, learn something about them in advance, connect with them, find out what connection you have, let them tell you what's on their mind at that time, and then if you're trying to persuade them of something, you have a better chance. If you go into a meeting and don't know the person's background, don't know anything about the person's history, don't listen to the person, don't feel there's any point in developing a connection, you're likely to be less successful. So, so let's say you learn about them and you know, you're trying to convince them of A, B, and C and you, you've learned that they probably hate A, B, and C. Okay. And you learned in advance? You learned in advance. Okay. And you have to write them a letter. Okay. What would you say in the letter? I would say, I know that you hate A, B, and C. And frankly, I wasn't so sure I would like A, B, and C either. In fact, it took me a long time to learn that I would like A, B, and C. And by the way, learning a, uh, about A, B, C, let me tell you the funny things that happened to me along the way of learning about A, B, and C. And let me tell you the mistakes I made. People like to hear uh, how other people failed, stumbled. Self-deprecating humor works. Um, I think humor, when you make fun of other people, usually doesn't work. So if I'm writing to somebody, I wouldn't say, by the way, you, you said something that was stupid, um, as opposed to saying, I said something that was stupid. So. Um, I think self-deprecating humor and humility works. Now, uh, today, it may seem strange to say to people, arrogance won't get you anywhere. Arrogance may get you somewhere. There's some examples of some people who are arrogant who like to brag that may have gotten someplace. But as a general rule of thumb... I feel like that was humor because you were probably referring to something specific, but we won't go into it. <laughs> I don't know what you're referring to, but <laughs> I would say as a general rule of thumb... People that can make fun of themselves get further in life. As a general rule of thumb, very secure people are humble. Um, Warren Buffett, who I know, you know reasonably well, modestly well, I wouldn't claim a buddy of his, but I've spent some time with him, interviewed him. He's you know, a pretty humble person, makes jokes about himself. Um, I'd say other really accomplished people are people that are humble. Uh, people that are arrogant, uh, I find probably are in the end generally not as successful but sometimes that, that's, there are exceptions to that. So I, I do think that self-deprecating humor can be very useful uh, in a speech. If I'm making a speech, I think self-deprecating humor can be very useful because if you're starting a speech and you tell people funny things about yourself and how not, you're not so great and, and you're convincing about it, you can't say, you know, I made a mistake the other day and I really was, it was dumb for me to do it, but generally I'm a genius. You, you, you can't step on your self-deprecating line. You have to give the self-deprecating line and let it, let it stay there. Oh, you have to own it. That you're you have not to really to believe it. I mean, some people I know try self-deprecating humor. It doesn't work. Now, um, John Kennedy was a very, very secure person, and he could get away with self-deprecating humor. And you know, he may have, uh, you know, thought he was better than maybe he would let on. Sometimes people who are insecure cannot make self-deprecating humor. Now, when I was younger and maybe less secure about myself, I didn't make fun of myself. Now I'm more accomplished, and so I'm pretty secure in what I've done and where I am, and I can afford to make fun of myself because you know it doesn't go to my persona anymore. I know that I've, I'm, I've accomplished certain things, and I won't feel bad about myself if I say how bad I am because you know to some extent there's some some humor in it. 
So I'm, I'm curious about one other element of, of persuasion, which you must deal with when um, looking at the hundreds of companies that you've either invested in or, or worked with and so on, um, which is motivation. How, what's, the, what's the, you look at a CEO and part of a CEO's uh, okay. purpose is to execute and to, and to monetize and so on, but they also have to motivate their customers, their shareholders, their employees, their vendors, their, and so on. What, what are, what are well, some things you look for? is really in many ways the most important existential question about life. What motivates yes. people? Why are people motivated to do what they do? Um, there are seven and a half billion people on the face of the earth. What are they doing here? What's the point of it? What's the point of life? Uh, what motivates somebody to really want to work hard or not work hard or, or to do this or that? Nobody really knows where we came from, what we're doing, where, what, what life is all about. But we've generally adopted the view that living is better than not living, that working is better than not working, that trying to make the world a better place is better than trying to ruin the world, that interacting pleasantly with other people is better than not doing that. And as a general rule of thumb, people have decided that progress and, and some kind of measure of success is better than failure and, and, and no progress. So what motivates a CEO? Well, you, a CEO might be motivated because he has a family he wants to support. He wants to prove that he's a smart person or she's a smart person. Want to prove that they know how to uh, motivate their employees. Uh, in the end, money is very big uh, motivator for people in the business world. It's a measure of success to some extent. So you, know, you have to figure out what motivates a CEO. Generally, they want to be seen as successful by their peers, by their family, um, by their employees. And so that's, you know, you can figure out pretty readily what motivates some people if you spend some time talking to them. So, and you think those, the, the best CEOs, of course, are good at motivating their employees. Absolutely. And so so you, 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 you think they, you, you look for, yes, they're motivated, but do they know how to motivate? How can you determine well, that? as I said, you have to persuade people. So you persuade them by giving good speeches to them, talking to them, writing to them, or leading by example, persuading by example. Those are the three basic ways that I would mention. And some people are good at it and some are not. Now, some people produce wonderful results as CEOs, but they're not particularly charismatic. Some produce um, uh, terrible results and they are very charismatic. So it depends, but generally, if you take a CEO like Bill Gates um, or Jeff Bezos or Steve Jobs in their early years, they were on a mission to build a computer, to build straight software, to sell things over the internet and they were able to um, convince the people working for them that there was some greater social purpose to doing that other than just making money for themselves. And that social purpose was giving people more knowledge, more capability of doing other things, getting things more cheaply, whatever it might be. And so you have to convince people that what you're doing is a useful thing. You can't say to people, let's make this widget, not because it's a good thing to do, but it just will make us money. And that's the only motivation. And you have no other feeling that it's something good socially about it. It probably won't work in the end. You know, I've heard you say, um, you know, the key to happiness is generosity. And you've also said in other speeches that um, chances are you won't be good at something you hate doing. You have to be That's good true. at something you, you love doing. I think a big struggle many people have, particularly in today's day and age where, where people don't stay at the same job for 50 years often, they either, they either reinvent themselves or someone gets divorced and moves and has to recreate themselves. How does someone find, whether they're young or middle-aged or older, how do they find what, what, what they love doing or what can make them happy? 
it's rare that somebody will at a young age say, this is what I want to do in life. And it works out, you know, maybe Willie Mays, Hank Aaron, Mickey Mantle early on knew they wanted to be a baseball player and they were, it worked out for them, but that's rare. And of course, if you are in that fortunate situation, you have to figure out what you do with the rest of your life when your playing career is over. But it takes a while to experiment. I, you know, thought I wanted to go in government. I thought I wanted to be a lawyer. I, I thought about politics. In the end, I found that what is making me happy is building something from scratch with the help of others, getting the material rewards from that, and then giving those material rewards to other people and helping other people. So that's what motivates me. Um, but everybody has their own motivation. But I, th I tell people, I've made two college grad commencement speeches just in the last couple of days, and I told the students at Indiana University and University of Baltimore, experiment. You won't know right away. Try different things. Your parents are wonderful, but ignore what they want. My mother wanted me to be a dentist, well-meaning, but I didn't really want to do that. You can't let your parents live your life for you. So try many different things. I didn't start Carlisle until I was 37. Um, you know, maybe people are, 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 can start things and find what they love earlier. I, I found out later in life. And now, because I found out later in life, and particularly now because I'm involved in my philanthropy phase, I am doing what I call sprinting to the finish line. I, I'm, I'm now 69 years old, the age that Ronald Reagan was when he ran against Carter. When I thought 69 was old, old age and you ready for a nursing home, now I think it's the prime of life. But I recognize that at 69, I've lived more than I'm going to live and probably have lived at least three quarters of my actuarial expected life. So I'm trying to get as many things done in the remaining 25% or whatever it might be because I don't want to be on my deathbed saying, oh, if I'd only done that or why didn't I do that? I just don't want to do that. I want to get things done now. And that's why I'm, I, I'm working harder now and longer hours than I did when I was in my 20s. And so experimenting also, I think, like I know you're, you, you read a lot, you read over 100 books a year, you're involved in the, you, you sponsor the National Book Festival. Uh, reading is often a good way to safely experiment without actually leaving your, your room. <laughs> Um, when I was six years old, I got a, a library card at the Enoch Pratt Free Library in Baltimore, and it was a prized possession, and somebody actually recently gave me a copy of it. Uh, they, they had on the files, I guess. Um, and you could take out 12 books a week, and I would take out the 12 books, and I could I'd read them all in one day. I had to wait another week before I could take out more books. I, I thought they should have changed the policy, but I, I didn't know how to persuade people in those days. So I, <laughs> I couldn't do it. Um, reading has enabled me to go from a very cloistered uh, uh, you know, upbringing in Baltimore to a more worldly knowledge. And to me, it's, it's what really has helped me in life. So I think that reading books is better than reading tweets or other things, because you concentrate the brain, you have to spend hours and hours and hours doing it. So I do love reading and I like to remind people, unfortunately, the 14% of Americans are functionally illiterate, so they can't read at all beyond a fourth grade level. And 30% of Americans are um, what I would call illiterate, which is to say they can read, but they choose not to. So 30%, and I say 30%, it's, it's 30% of Americans who graduate from college never read another book in their life. Hmm. Hard to believe, but it's a sad situation. So I, I try to tell every graduating class or people I speak to, read books. Keep reading, reading, reading. It's this, it, it exposes you to so many different parts of the world and, and it's a great pleasure in life. And, and I'm... On that note, I want to make sure, I know you're writing a book that we can all read and I want to make sure you get to your meeting with your Thanks. publisher. One, one final thing, which hopefully you can answer quickly. You're 69, you do all of these things. We've listed only maybe right. one fifth right. of the things that, that you do incredibly. How do you have the energy? I feel 
tired by 11 a.m. every day. Well, um, I could do a better job in, in some respects uh, because, um, you know, I, I, when I interviewed Jeff Bezos, he said the key to his success is getting eight hours of sleep a night. And I realized that nobody in the audience was getting 80 hours of sleep a night, including me. Um, so I expect I would be better if I got 80 hours of sleep a night. But I, I think what it is is I'm fairly uh, well motivated. I think motivation helps you. Um, I, if you love what you're doing, it's not work. So everything I'm doing every day, including this uh, discussion, is something I wanted to do. I don't have to do a lot of things I don't want to do anymore. So loving what you do it makes it easier. Um, taking... Um, you know, the time to really prepare for it and making certain that you know what you're doing helps. And I would like to quote Jim Baker's father who, who used to say to him, prior preparation prevents poor performance. Mm. Prior preparation prevents poor performance. So I like to be prepared. And when I'm prepared, I feel, um, you know, good uh, about what I'm trying to do, even though it might seem taxing. So for example, yesterday for a program I have on WNET, public television in uh, in, with the New York Historical Society in New York, I had to interview, because of the schedule, um, Ron Chernow about his new book on Grant without taking a break after that was over, go and then interview Walter Isaacson on his all of his books and then uh, Cokie Roberts on all of her books. So in three hour period, I had to you know, kind of go through many books and I you know, was prepared for it so I could do it. But if you're not prepared, it would be much more difficult. But I, you know, I love what I'm doing. I just, you know, I don't know, it, when you reach the age of 69, you don't know what is going to go bad. Is it something in the brain or something in the body? And and you know, never know. Something you know, I could walk out of here tomorrow and I get hit by a car. Uh, you never know what's what's going to happen or some bad thing can happen. You know, why is it that somebody got cancer and I didn't? Why is it that somebody got um, a heart, had a heart attack and I didn't? You just don't know. So you just want to keep moving forward. Think that you're lucky if you can continue to live and and that's you know what I'm trying to do. Get as much done as I can before my brain goes or my my, my body goes. Well, David Rubenstein, uh, co-chairman of the Carlisle Group, chairman of a billion other things, co-founder of the Carl Carlisle Group, chairman of the Smithsonian Institution, philanthropist, uh, member of the Forbes billionaire list. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I, I want to mention uh, Byron Allen, asked, who owns the Weather Channel, asked me to convey to you his gratitude for your uh, great donation to the uh, National African American Museum uh, he was very well, grateful for that. And thank him for keeping me informed about the weather. <laughs> thanks so much. All right, thanks a lot. Mm -hmm.